Hi, I'm Matt Henry, and I'm the pastor at Missio Day Fellowship in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Very thankful that you found our sermons, and I hope that they are a way of encouragement to you in your Christian walk. However, it's important for you to understand that this sermon was given in my church's context and for the people that God has entrusted for me to shepherd. So if you're in the Kenosha area, I would encourage you to come on a Sunday and worship with the body of Christ here. And if you're not in this area, these sermons are a great tool for supplementing your walk, but they are by no means a substitute for the local church. So you need to submit yourself to a faithful Bible teaching church and shepherd in your area. Thank you. As we look at Acts 9, I'm going to read it, and I want you to follow along in verse 32 to the end of the chapter. Hear now the word of the Lord. It says, Now it happened that as Peter was traveling through all of those regions, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. And there he found a man named Aeneas, who had been bedridden eight years, for he was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise up, make your bed. And immediately he rose up. And all who lived at Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now in Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha, which translated is called Dorcas. This woman was full of good works and charity, which she continually did. It happened at that time that she fell sick and died. And when they had washed her body, they laid it in an upper room. Now, since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, having heard that Peter was there, sent two men to him, pleading with them, do not delay in coming to us. And so Peter went, arose and went with them. And when he arrived, they brought him into the upper room and all the widows stood beside him crying and showing all the tunics and garments that Dorcas used to make while she was with them. But Peter sent them all out, knelt down and prayed, and turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up, and calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known all over Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And it happened that he stayed many days in Joppa with a tanner named Simon. May the Lord bless his word. Now, I've said repeatedly, and I will continue to say all the way through the book of Acts, that the book of Acts is a book of transition, one that is moving from the old covenant to the new covenant, something that may not seem like a big deal to you, but it's an earth-shattering deal. No longer is a covenant made with Moses the way that we come and approach God. No longer do we approach God through Israel. No longer is it administered through the temple or the priesthood or the law, but rather now as people who believe in Jesus Christ, we are partakers of what's called the new covenant. A new covenant, which is where the promise of the spirit of God being poured out upon us and having the law of God written on our hearts, no longer is it something external from us, but there's a heart change that occurs that makes us and enables us to obey our Lord. And so the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 8, verse 13, that when he mentions a new covenant, that he had made the first obsolete, but whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. And that's what you're actually seeing in Acts. 
You're actually watching the transition from one covenant to another and how God interacts with us. And so one of the things that you'll find in the book of Acts, and we're coming up to it here very soon, are people who are known as God-fearers. And you'll see them, and they'll just be that he was a God-fearer. Well, it's always spoken of Gentiles, not an Israelite. A God-fearer is a person who has trusted in Yahweh, who is a follower of God, and they believe. Now, in the old days, under the old covenant, they what they had to do is they had to actually become a Jew. And even then, as a Gentile, they could never go beyond the court of the Gentiles, but they were having to become part of Israel if they were going to follow God. And they were known as God-fearers. But they did not yet know about the birth, death, I mean the life and death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who was the promised one. They were still waiting for it. And now as they hear that Jesus Christ did in fact come, they believe and are baptized and are brought into the fullness of this life. And so now, with that, we have the Spirit of God being poured out upon people who believe. And what we're watching in the book of Acts is this progress and this outward spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ moving outward. In fact, everyone in this room who is a genuine Christian, you have this section that is bearing witness of how you ultimately heard the gospel. Up to this point, it was basically in the land of Israel, and now it's starting to slowly work its way outward. Now, when you have this, what you end up with is an influx of of miracles that occur, and this is very important for you to learn. We find here in our stories two stories that we can make the whole point be about, but I don't think it is the point. What you have is a man who was paralyzed, and now he walks, and a woman who was dead, and now she's alive again. Now, what's happening? Well, the purpose of miracles, the reality of miracles, whether you know it or not, are not to wow you, not to get you all excited and riled up and thinking cool things, but rather they are designed to signify the authority of those who are there performing them. The reality is that miracles are very rare in the Bible, though we don't think that way. And oftentimes we tend to think that they happen more often than they do, but only in few key parts of biblical history do they ever occur. The first time is in the rescuing of Israel out of Egypt. We have the splitting of the Red Sea. We have the manna from heaven, the water from the rock, the clothes that never uh, fail. All of the various miracles you see in the Old Testament with the early days of Israel is nothing more than a point in time where God was uniquely working, and out of it comes miracles. And these miracles prove the authority and the credentials of both Moses and Aaron, but also Joshua as he leads the nation into the promised land. And after all of that's done, miracles stop. You don't have any real record of them, And then all of a sudden comes the life and ministry of two men, Elijah and Elisha. And they are faithful prophets to the northern kingdom. Remember, uh, after Solomon, the king, his son Rehoboam was an unfaithful, unwise king. And as a result of that, 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel split off. And those 10 became known as Israel, and the other two that stayed faithful were known as Judah. 
And Elijah and Elisha were called to be prophets to those 10 rebellious tribes. And as a result, they had the ability to do miracles. Many other prophets couldn't do it, but these two were given it. They were pursuing, they, they watched the 10 tribes pursue false gods, false beliefs of every wicked kind, and they were called to then preach against that and proclaim the truth of Yahweh. And in that, they also had this ability to do miracles. And so in chapter 17, uh, verse 24 of 1 Kings, Elijah finds a woman whose son had died. She would be now penniless and hopeless. And he raises her or raises the young man from the dead. And the woman says this, Now I know, now I know that you are a man of God and the words of Yahweh in your mouth is truth. In other words, because he did this, he wasn't just raising the, the little boy from death to life, but in fact, he was showing himself to be what he was, the prophet, and that she should listen to him. Because all around her are all these false prophets prophesying, obviously, falsely. Then you have the ministry of Christ. Christ shows up on the scene. He is the promised one. What does he show that? How does he prove that? Well, he does it by the most casual exp- uh, um, showing of miracles, whether it be a dead person or a demonic person or a sick person of whatever type, whether it's causing the bread to be multiplied or walking on water. It doesn't really matter what it is. He simply does it, and he does it with great casualness. But what's interesting is that hundreds of years have gone by between Jesus and Elijah. Hundreds and hundreds of years have gone by, and nobody's doing these things. All of a sudden, Jesus shows up, and he's doing them. And the religious leaders ask him, they say in John chapter 10, tell us, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, the Messiah, tell us plainly. So they claim that they really want to know if he is really the Christ so they can follow him. At least that's what it looks like. And Jesus said to them, I told you and you don't believe. And then he says, the works that I do in my Father's name, these bear witness of me. He's like, I've already told you. You don't need to have me tell you again. Besides, you should know I am the Christ simply because of the works that I'm doing, the miracles. And then you have the apostles. Christ empowers them to go forth with the gospel and also gives them that ability to be able to perform miracles in his name. And so as they went out, they would do miracles as they preached the gospel. And in that, it would confirm for all who were watching that they, in fact, were sent by God. So much so that in 2 Corinthians 12.12, Paul says that the signs of a true apostle was signs, wonders, and miracles. It was just something an apostle could do. But as the gospel went out and as the Bible was written, the New Testament specifically was written and completed, what you find in history is that the presence of miracles began to fall away. Why? Because there was no longer the need for the word to be confirmed. It had been confirmed. It was historically accurate. We saw it done through these miracles, and now we have the written word, and the call is believe the gospel. Now today, though, in America, and we've had this for many years, is the idea that miracles ought to be the norm. But the Bible itself doesn't even show them to be the norm. 
Never does history show any normalization of miracles. Another aspect of this transition that I'm talking about in the book of Acts, though, is that transition from the apostles and their work in Israel, and now the transition where the Holy Spirit is beginning to work among you and I, the Gentiles. And so that starts with Stephen when he was stoned, and as he was stoned to death, The people fled for their lives, and what did they flee with on their lips? Do you remember? It was the word of God, the gospel. They fled with the gospel, and now it's starting to spread. And so you end up with a guy named Philip in Samaria, where the Jews would have hated these people. They're half-breeds. They're false. They worship Yahweh falsely. And yet he brings the gospel to them, and the Spirit falls upon them. They speak in other languages. And what is going on there? Well, it's God showing that the gospel is not just for the Jew, but for the Samaritans. So the apostles come down, they investigate, and they're like, this is amazing. These guys are now included as well. They have the same blessings happening to them as we had in Acts 2. Then Philip finds this Ethiopian eunuch. He's actually brought to him by the Holy Spirit, and he happens to be reading Isaiah, and he wants somebody to teach him. So Philip then tells him about who Isaiah is writing about, and it is the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And the guy believes and is baptized, and on that day, the gospel began to enter into the continent of Africa. And now we come to Peter again, and the focus will be on this expansion of the gospel among the Gentiles. And that's what you're seeing. Now, ministry that we most think about with Peter is his big ministry of chapter 2 and chapter 3 of Acts, of the miracles, of the many people coming, the thousands literally coming to faith. But he's not been in the picture for a while. Instead, it's been on people like Philip and Stephen And now we have the life or or the conversion of Saul, who's now going to be known as Paul. But all of a sudden, out of the blue, he brings our focus back to Peter. And we're going to look at him for a while. And the the question would be, why? Well, Peter is the one who first makes the major inroads with the Gentiles. Again, let me say it to you simply. You and I would not be here worshiping Christ if it wasn't for what Peter did and what Paul did. They went into the land of the hated Gentile, and they began to bring the gospel. Now, as all of that happens, we see some miracles, but I don't want you to focus on those miracles because they are not the norm. What you actually see is the power of God working through the apostle Peter, but you also see it with others. And along with that, you get a chance to see a little bit of the daily life of believers, And in that, what I think you'll see are certain marks of a faithful ministry that can benefit us today. Let me say it to you this way. If you are a Christian, then you're called a ministry. This is not reserved for the select few who go to a seminary. It's not for the ones who are, quote-unquote, called to the ministry. But in fact, every person in this room, if you are a Christian, you have been called to ministry Simply mean, which simply means to serve. That's all ministry means. You and I are called to serve one another in love and humility. But often what we do is we end up making ministry something bigger than it's supposed to be, and we start to make it something that we should not be doing. 
And I want to disabuse you of that. I want you to get away from the idea of thinking that ministry is something a pastor does. And in fact, it's what all of us are called to do. And in one way or another, if you're a Christian, you are doing. So the question you want, I would like you to ask as we look at this uh, section, I'm going to pull out different uh, points to make, is how can I, sitting here right now hearing this sermon, how can I become a faithful minister, or am I a faithful minister? Or to put it a different way, am I or how can I become a faithful servant? And what I hope is that as you look at this, that many of you will realize you are a faithful servant. If I were to ask you, you might say, no, I don't think I am. I need to grow in that area. But many of you, are, in fact, are doing quite nicely. You just don't know it because perhaps you've got a wrong idea of what ministry looks like. And then, then with the others here, some of you, you do need to wake up and realize that there's opportunities for you to serve, you're called to serve, and that you should stop waiting for that right moment and just simply seize the opportunity. Now, for us in America, bigger is always better, and so we want big names, we want big venues, and we want big ministries. But that's not really how God tends to work. And so what I want to do is go look past these miracles, because there's not much given to us about the miracles, and look about what's going on behind, and that is simply put, men and women who are faithfully serving. So how, how can we be faithful in ministry? Well, I have several principles I want to draw out. First principle is very simple. Let God determine the expanse of your ministry. Where do I get that? Well, I see it as I contemplated just verse 32. It says, now it happened that as Peter was traveling through all those regions, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. And he finds this guy, Aeneas, and he heals him. And you say, okay, what's that got to do with God determining the expanse of your ministry? Well, where did you see Peter last time? At, at the last time, you saw him doing great things. You saw him preaching and people by the thousands being saved. You see him doing works of miracles. He's got this big ministry in Jerusalem, and now all of a sudden the camera goes away from for a while, and now it comes back to, let's kind of check in with our friend, the Apostle Peter. What's Peter doing nowadays? And you can almost hear David Attenborough's voice in the background in this little BBC special on the lives of the apostles. And as our camera comes back, we find the Apostle Peter. What's he doing? He's not doing anything really big. All he's doing is he is walking through the region teaching. Very, very different. He starts out big in chapters 2 and 3, but that wasn't normative even for him. That wasn't his ministry. God did not call him to a healing ministry or a baptism ministry or a prophecy ministry. He called him to be a servant to the church. And so even though he has done some pretty exciting things, that's not how he defines himself. You don't find him going out trying to figure out the demographics of the area and then focus on some key group. He's not saying, well, you know, obviously God put me in Jerusalem, so I'm going to be looking for a certain age group, age gap, and I want to meet the needs of those people, and we're going to kind of build our whole ministry around them. Instead, he's just out going from town to town, quietly doing ministry. Nothing exciting, 
He's not sending an advanced team to set up the big tent so that he can then have a big healing ministry. He's not doing any of the other kinds of things that maybe you have grown up like I have. I remember in our old town in Nampa, Idaho, you get the traveling revivalist and he be coming in and they always sent the advanced team and billboards would start going up and then they'd raise a massive tent. And that guy would be there, and all of a sudden things are going out in the mail, and, and he's buying time on the radio, all of it to advertise that he's coming into town and create the buzz. Peter's not that way. He's just serving. I know of a pastor in Milwaukee who told me that his church exists for the middle to, middle to upper middle class men between the ages of 35 to 55. And he just spit that out very easily. He, they're looking for men who like sports and physical activities, and so their whole church is built around that to the point that they even painted the church the colors of Harley-Davidson because that's the people they want. But that's not how God actually operates. We don't try to market ourselves here for any person, any specific grade, level of of class in this world, level of education, gender, any of that. The reality is that God just simply brings those who are rich and poor, wise and foolish, slave and free together because of the gospel. And so as I said, the first service, I'll say it again here, most of you would not be friends with one another except for the fact that Christ died for you. The whole fact that you interact with each other and know each other and get come here every single week to worship and to talk is simply because you have one common thing, the gospel of Jesus Christ who saved you. And because of that, you are brought together, and that's how the church is to function, a group of unlikely people all coming to hear the word and to worship. But behind all that is discontentment, because discontentment can destroy serving where God calls you to serve. If you are not the one, if you are the one who's going to determine how you serve, then you'll serve very differently than if you serve like God wants you to serve. But we become discontent. Very true if you didn't know of pastors. A pastor aspires to greatness. A pastor secretly wants to be that pastor, the big pastor. I have never met a, a pastor in my life who doesn't truly desire something more than what he has. And then when he gets it, usually he's still discontent because it's not what he thought it was going to be. And as a result, many pastors will step on and step over those who are in competition with him and destroy. We would watch this in multi-staff uh, churches where, you know, you've got a choice ministry, the one that might put you, quote-unquote, on the map, and how much politicking can occur among supposedly godly, humble servants of the Lord, all vying to become the guy who gets the prize. And if you have to step on a few toes, so be it. That's the price of ministry. Many, many A faithful pastor has gone to his grave and only to be forgotten and ignored by the people who stand on his shoulders in his labors in that field. But it's also true of you. You too can be that way. 
So many ways we can become discontent. We're not smart enough. We're not well enough. We're, we're physically limited. We have this. We have that. And so we begin to tell ourselves, well, I can't. I can't because I don't have the things that I think I need. God has not given me those yet. And so I'm not content. And so I resist whatever it is that God puts at my feet. I'll confess this to you because I confessed it to the first church. When I was in our little church in uh, Houston, Texas, I was a young man. I was a deacon. I felt I should be an elder. Uh, the elders had not yet recognized my greatness. And so um, I'm, I'm serious. I just truly thought I was all that, and I should be an elder. And I was a deacon. And I somehow thought that being a deacon was something less. So it tells you already, that discontentment, right? And then what they had was they had several things that they needed taken care of and overseen. And so they made a list, and the elders gave it to each deacon and said, hey, circle the top two that you would like and turn it in. And we're, what we're going to try to do is match everybody up to something that they'd like to do so we can get these things resolved. I filled out, and I put my two, and they were two that I had already been doing. I was very faithful in them. They were things I literally invested my own time and money. One was the Lord's Supper, and it was the preparation, just like some of you do every Sunday. That used to be my job. And every Sunday, I would put the the stuff together and bring it down. I even bought the trays and the cups. I just supplied all that out of my own free will for our church. And so that was like number one. I mean, I'm already doing it. And then there was a number two, and those were the ones I got. And later on, they came to me, and they said, hey, Matt, this is that church. I'll never forget it. And they said, Matt, here's the ministries you're going to oversee. And they weren't even remotely the ones I wanted. I blew up. I can remember this. I'm 62 people, and I still remember something 40 years ago. I said, are you kidding me? That loud. What is this? These aren't the things I signed up for. And he's trying to placate, Phil Mooney, trying to placate me. I'm like, what What are you guys thinking? Um, Of course, I was elder material, you know. (laughs) They just didn't know it. And I'm so ashamed of this. And what really bothered me was he's like, Matt, you, ha- you have to understand, we only had so many p- positions, and we put you in these. I'm like, but why? This makes no sense. This is stupid. Can't you hear yourself saying that? Maybe you're too wise, and only I would, but I suspect many of you could do it. Here's what killed me. He said, Matt, we gave these to you because the elders thought, that you would be mature enough to handle the disappointment. Oh. <laughs> and I had to eat my words, and I had to be deeply ashamed as I realized here, I, the fact that I was giving the garbage, I'm calling it that, the garbage ministries, was actually because they thought more highly of me than I was worthy but that's not how we look at it, is it? We look at the ministry and we're like, well, what's up with this? You're not recognizing me. And we, and we limit 
And that's really because we do not see that it is God who determines the expanse of the ministry. He put Peter at the forefront and made him do some amazing things. And then he puts him here where he's just quietly walking through the countryside. No sense that he's with a big crowd of people. Peter is just quietly, faithfully serving the needs of the church. One thing my wife has reminded me faithfully over the years, and very faithful, is something that John MacArthur has told us many times. He says, you worry about the depth of your ministry, and God will worry about the breadth. You just worry about being faithful and deep in whatever it is you're doing. Then let God expand that. Back in the old days at Grace Community Church, all pastors and elders first served in the custodial department, always. Because if they could not clean a toilet, then they were never going to deal with the hearts of the people. And it was just the way it was. Beloved, needs and opportunities are all around you. Much of it's not that exciting or ground-shaking, but it's needed, and therefore it's good. And sometimes you need to be like just Peter. Sometimes you get to do the exciting things, and other times you need to rise up and do the boring things, the mundane things that find no glory, no pleasure. Nobody ever comes and thanks you. Nobody acknowledges until you mess up. You want the worst ministry in the world? Be in the sound booth. Run the slides, right? Because everyone's up there full of the Spirit, singing their joy to Jesus until you're slow with the slide, and then all of a sudden their heads go back. You sleep back there? Pastor Matt's on his phone sending himself an email to yell at Lena to yell at somebody. Who wants that job? But you need it, and it's needed to be done. Second principle about ministry, just that I came from this passage, was that God will give you ministry opportunities, but you have to act on them. In Acts 2, Peter was not looking for a preaching ministry. Peter was minding his own business, and the Spirit comes and poured out upon the people. Remember, they started speaking in languages they did not know, speaking of the mighty acts of God. All the people in Jerusalem think they're drunk and crazy, and they start asking questions. And an opportunity to explain arose, and Peter took it. He just took it. He didn't say, well, what do you guys think? One of us should maybe say something. He just stood up and spoke. He's like, well, I I know why. And he spoke. And not as he spoke, he spoke in a confrontational way, showing them that they had rejected Jesus. They had killed him. Unfortunately for them, God raised him from the dead, which means they are in trouble because they had murdered the one God had sent, but he was not dead still. And so then they ask, well, what do we need to do? And he points them to repent and be baptized, right? And then the church is born. And then what we find is he's going and to, from house to house as a church in the early part gathered, and they needed the apostles' teaching. And so it says that the early church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to prayer, and the breaking of bread and fellowship. Well, wh- well, what does that require then? Well, it requires that somebody be teaching them. The apostles were doing that. So he goes from a big ministry to now going from house to house, faithfully teaching the people who need it. And then in Acts 3, Peter is again going by. He sees a man. He heals him. And as a result of this healing, people are asking what's going on. And so he preaches a very severe sermon to them. So much so that he gets himself into trouble. 
But none of these were planned. None of these were him saying, I'm going to go in, I'm going to do my revival ministry in Milwaukee on this day, and then we'll move on to the next town. It was just, he was in the stream of life, and situations arose, and he rose, raised his hand and said, I'll go. Now you have him in the region, visiting various churches and believers, strengthen. Why? Because it was needed, guys. That's all. If that's all I'm trying to say to you, I'm going to spend a whole hour doing is it was needed, so he fulfilled it. He didn't say, well, is this, as, this is not as big a ministry as the one back in Jerusalem. He's in Jerusalem. He hears that churches are being brought up in these various areas from the people who had fled. He's like, well, they're going to need somebody to teach. And so off he goes to teach. In other words, there's a basic principle, and that is ministry, service, doesn't just happen. You have to learn to open your eyes to it. And some are good and some are not at this. Some, too often what we do is we find ourselves waiting for that right time, right? Or that right ministry. I know of one uh, person who made herself absolutely miserable for most of her life because she was not recognized for her great giftedness. And she kept being asked to serve in other ways, and she didn't like it. Just like I didn't like it when I put in my request for my two ministries, and I got something very, very different, We're waiting for the right thing, the thing that we think we're worthy of. I remember going to Grace Community Church, and here I was, a young man who had been preaching already back in Houston. Now I'm off to the college, and then, Lord willing, the seminary, and I show up at this one big Sunday school. The Sunday school was twice as big as our church. And I'm there, and I go to the pastor, and I'm like, hi, my name is Matt. I've been coming here for a while. Um, I'm just wondering, is there some way I can serve? I, I love to teach. I'm called to preach. And he's like, oh, are you in seminary? And I said, no, I'm in the college. He's like, well, then no, you won't teach at all. We only let seminary students do that. I was deeply offended yet again. What do you mean, only seminary students? Well, they only have so many slots, so they gave them to the seminary students who needed it. And again, I was annoyed and frustrated. Why am I not being recognized? Too often what you do is you wait for the right thing to come. And so over the years, you are still waiting because you never get around to doing what's needed, only what you want. I can't tell you over the years how many times I've heard people say, I just don't feel led toward that pastor when I asked them. So I asked my wife, I'll pick on my poor wife. Hey, woman, I think you ought to work in the nursery. We need somebody in nursery. Now, my wife would do that in a second. Unless she had to teach Sunday school, she'd say, oh, okay. But what would happen if she said, well, I don't feel led? We still have a nursery that needs to be cared for. But the question that would rise up in my mind is, I'm your pastor. How much more leading do you need? That's like a kid saying, you come into your kid, hey, the room's pretty dirty. Yeah, I'm not feeling led. Well, let me help you. Let me shepherd you all the way down the hallway with my foot until you're in the room cleaning, Right? 
Well, you don't need leading. You've been led. And yet, to, to, in our mind, that's nah, not really what we're called to do. And so we often end up missing the small opportunities to serve, which are actual indicators of those who watch your faithfulness. So Christ said, he who is faithful with little is faithful also in what? In much. Some people don't understand that they're being asked to do a minor thing just to see if you'd be willing to do it. Like I said, at Grace, they made you work in the custodial department and you got paid nothing. Why? Well, it takes a certain amount of humility with a church of 10,000. Just kind of picture what bathrooms look like. My wife actually did that ministry for a while. She was what's known as a sparkle girl. Yeah, well, whatever you think of us, good or bad, we've done it all. And she would be in there faithfully cleaning the bathrooms, keeping them clean and sparkly for any visitors. But if you're able to faithfully serve in that way, in God's time, he may or may not move you to other ministries. Let me just give you some quick thoughts. Stop waiting and act on what is needed by the church at the time, whatever that might be. Stop waiting and saying it's for somebody else. If an opportunity is there, unless you're physically incapable of doing it, rise up and do it. Start serving wherever you're at. The whole ministry of honing hospitality is an interesting exercise because there what we're asking is the women of the church are called to be women doing good works of charity, of being hospitable, acts of kindness. And so we started this ministry, Honing Hospitality, to help the ladies learn. Because we also had ladies saying, well, I'm not very good at it. So we start the ministry. And then what we find is that the same people are only, and usually only those same people are willing to open their homes. And other people go to the Honing Hospitality, but they don't go with the mindset to learn so they can then immediately put it into practice themselves. And so Lauren then puts out the request for people who want to host, and there's a reluctance. Why? If that's your calling, and you are called, by the way, ladies, to be known as a woman of working, of good charity and good works and hospitality, then you should be lining up to volunteer your house so that you can be hospitable. Now, there's always the exception but an exception is only an exception when it's an exception. When it's the rule, it's not the exception. Pray for opportunities. But when you pray, pray expectantly. Actually, after you pray, look around. You'll be shocked at how many things you might see there ready for you. Be content to serve where opportunities arise. You'll probably never be given a groundbreaking event to serve. Usually, most of the things you'll do are mundane. I remember, again, John MacArthur, he came into a classroom of seminary students, and there he was speaking to them. And one of them said, well, Pastor John, how long do you prepare for your sermon? And he said, well, in the early years, he's like, I've been doing this for years, so I'm faster. But he says, in the early years, I would spend 30 to 40 hours every week preparing my two sermons. And that's about how long a good, faithful study will take you. Everyone's like, yeah. He's like, but let me, let me hasten the inner to, to uh, add something to that. He's like, many of you are thinking, oh, that's what I'm going to do. 
and you're going to get out and you're going to go to your church and you're going to announce to them, you hired me to be a preacher of the word, therefore you need to free up my time of 30 to 40 hours every week so I can be in my study preparing. And if you try to give me anything, I'm going to look at you and say, wait, I thought you wanted to hear the word of God. He said, don't do that. He said, not only did I put 30 to 40 hours a week in my study, but I did another 30 to 40 hours a week with a broom, a plunger, and a towel. He's like, I moved tables, I set up, tore down, cleaned bathrooms, swept hallways, vacuumed, washed dishes. He's like, all of you have to understand that you are coming into a church to serve, not to be served. And to this day, still seminary students out of the Master's Seminary known for splitting their churches that they take because they demand all the time to serve, I mean to study and not actually get out of their office and serve. So don't be like that. Take whatever opportunities arise and don't say, well, I don't do that. Stop asking why you should do something and start asking why you shouldn't do it. And keep your time flexible. If you fill up every time slot every day for every week, you'll never have the time and you'll say, I'm justified because I'm so busy. No, you're just too busy. Make some flexibility. Here is Peter healing people twice. Why did he heal them? Because he could. And so he took it upon himself to do it. We see the miracle, but all he's really doing is serving. Next principle, number three, make the ministry. This is very simple, very obvious. Make the ministry about Jesus Christ and not yourself. Again, in our day and age, we're always asking, how can we monetize our ministry? How can we monetize this? How can we write a book off of this? How can we get on a tour? How can we start a nonprofit organization where we can get all kinds of money flowing in for this work? But in verses 34, 3 and 34, what you see is Aeneas gets healed. But what does Peter say when he does? He says, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. No fanfare, no exciting uh, things, just he heals you. So rise up. And that's all we have. That's all we have about this amazing miracle. That'd be pretty cool to see. But it's played down. The whole point of it is that Uh, Peter was healing not in his own power, but in the power of Christ. So he points all focus to him, and as a result, people come to faith. They realize that this gospel he's preaching is true, and here's a man who has this ability. Then we find Tabitha. She find, she's raised from the dead, but what's the effect again? Well, the effect is that many turn to the Lord. Why? Because that's who the focus is on. It wasn't on Tabitha. Tabitha was not then pulled aside by a marketer and said, we need to get your story out there. We need to get this published. I'm going to get a ghostwriter. I want you to sit down, kind of give us the highlights of this event, of what happened, all the things about dying. Did you see anybody? Did you happen to see God in heaven? Were the streets really paved with gold? Tell us. We need to know so we can get this out to the masses. We're going to get you on a speaking tour. No, none of that's the issue. It was just a simple servant raising up a person because he can, and other people serving to get this guy who could raise her, but it was all about Jesus Christ. Principle four. 
The potential effect of a ministry is not the basis of your deciding to serve. This one's hard for people to sometimes learn. The potential effect of ministry is not the basis for your deciding to serve. So many ways I could deal with this and talk about it. I, just as a pastor, when you're out there and you're looking, and you, if you go out and you start candidating, what happens is that you contact various groups. Uh, for me, it was just through my seminary, and you would go into the placement office, and churches all around the world would send in things to the master seminary saying, we're looking for a pastor, associate, full-time, multi-staff, it doesn't matter. They give a little bit about their church, the pay range, the, what they need, the experience level, and then you start going through these things and decide which ones you want. And most men are not looking for the icky churches. Most men are looking for, ooh, this one sounds exciting. This one sounds fulfilling. And it is just that idea that's all about what I would like to do. But that's not to be the basis of your deciding to serve. Now, in this section, we have two miracles happening, and they can distract you from what's more important. Because, again, we live in the day of big and showy. And what matters is, are we actually just being faithful, not whether or not the effects are big? In fact, moms and dads need to understand that their most basic ministry is just to their children, showing them faithful Loving parents who will discipline them, but instruct them in the ways of God, to bring them up in the gospel. A a daughter desperately needs to feel the hug of her father. She needs to hear the comforting words and the care of a loving mother who, who oversees the household on behalf of the husband. We need people who are faithful to labor hard at their employers, men and women faithful with their finances so they can serve people faithful with their leisure. It's, it's very boring stuff, but it's actual service. Why did Peter do these miraculous things? Because he could, that's all. He was an apostle. That was his ability. That's why he did them. But what was his real ministry? Was it a ministry of healing and miracles? No, it was shepherding shepherding the flock of God. And as the apostles died off, that was replaced by elders slash pastors of that task to shepherd. That was the real ministry. He happened to do miracles, but not all the time. But what he did constantly was teach, and he served in that way. It's interesting. We have people in this new movement called the New Apostolic Reformation Movement, guys like Bill Johnson out of California or Mike Bickle. There's all kinds of names out there. I hope that you're ignorant of them. You should stay ignorant of them. They're dangerous. And they're all about these big movements of the the miraculous. In our own city, we have a subsection of those types of people, and they teach a conference, I don't know if they still do, but they have multiple times, called Naturally Supernatural. And the whole idea is that we are to be living in the supernatural as a natural part of our day. That every day we ought to be experiencing the supernatural, meaning prophetic dreams and speaking in the tongues and healings and miracles of every type. It is to be natural among us. We should be walking around just sprinkling unicorn dust 
wherever we go doing these great works. It should be natural. But the ministry of Peter was not healing. The ministry of Peter was calling people to have faith in Christ, much less exciting. In fact, we even see how limiting, limited uh, miracles were because Aeneas had been paralyzed how many years? Eight. Nobody could do it up to that point. Why? Because miracles weren't the normal. Many of the people saw him and just realized that he suffered, but Peter was gifted with that ability. Now consider that as opposed to a guy named Bill Johnson out of Reading. He's a major, major player. He has huge influence even in our town. He says that the supernatural is a natural state for a proper, a proper Christian. So he says... I quote, people often come to me and ask me to pray for them that they would discover God's will for their life. I already know God's will for their life. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cast out devils, cleanse lepers. Well, they say, yes, but I need to know if I should be a school teacher or a missionary. I say, well, just pick one. And then heal the sick, raise the dead, cast out devils, cleanse lepers. Or they will say, I just don't know whether I should be married or should be single. I reply, what do you want to be? Well, I really want to be married. He said, then get married and heal the sick, raise the dead, cast out devils, and cleanse lepers. This is from his book, The Manifesto of a Normal Christian Life. This is a man whose wife is dead and just recently died of cancer. He could not raise her from the dead. He could not heal her cancer. In fact, he can't even deal with the ever-increasing gray in his hair or the wrinkles on his face or the fact that he has to wear prescription glasses. And yet he makes millions telling people that it is normal for you to be raising the dead and healing the sick. That's not what you see here, though. You just see a guy who happens to be given that because he's a true apostle and he casually uses it for the good of the people as he points them then to Christ. I wanted, I was hoping I could reorganize my sermon so that we could go to 1 Kings 19, but we can't. But what's interesting in that story, I'm just going to make this mention, is Elijah's just come off of the mountaintop experience. If you know the story of Elijah and the, the false prophets, he's up on a mountain and there's like, who's going to win, Baal or Yahweh? And all the prophets of Baal, they wreck this big old altar and he says, well, do this, do that. And they're now praying and dancing and literally cutting their bodies at trying to get Baal to consume their offering. And he's mocking him, Elijah's being a good prophet. He's like, well, maybe he's using the bathroom. Maybe he's asleep. He's a little busy right now. Just keep trying. And he's just mocking them. Then it's his turn, and he gets all the stones, and he puts the stones and the wood, and then he makes them dig a moat, and then he has all this water poured over it, so it's everything's sopping wet, and there's a moat of water. And then he begins to pray to Yahweh, and fire comes down from heaven, eats it all away. Boom, it's gone. And then he says, kill them all. And all the prophets of Baal are slaughtered. And then he prays for rain because there is a drought. And, and you know the story, hopefully. And, and he sends the servant, go look, I'm praying. 
And no, I got nothing. He's like, go look again. Well, there's a small cloud about the size of a hand. He's like, go look again. And then the deluge comes. And then it says that the king, a wicked king, was fleeing in a chariot, and, and uh, Elijah outran him, which is pretty cool. That's like, we could write some books on this, right? I could monetize that. And next thing you know is he's now wanting to die. Elijah wants to die because what has happened is King Ahab and Jezebel wish to have him killed. And so he's being hunted and he's discouraged and he's bitter about it. And he's like, let me just die like my father's. And instead, God, through the angel of the Lord, which would have been Christ before he came, this is pre-incarnate Christ, the son says, rise and eat, and he has food waiting for him. Obviously, he doesn't want to die. He wants him to live. So he does, and he continues to complain and be bitter. And then it says that as he stepped out, that there was this great whirlwind, there was a great earthquake, there was this great burning. But in all of these weird, crazy events, it says the Lord was not in them. And then, in the end, he hears a gentle whispering. And, and the people use this out of context all the time, that all you need to do is start to listen for the still, small voice of the Lord. How many times have you older Christians heard people talk about that? We just need to attune our hearts to the still, small voice. And oh, I think I hear it. What's he saying? He wants me to get married to this man who's not a Christian. Oh, don't think that's the Lord. Well, it was still and it was quiet. But actually... The meaning of this, then, is that he explains to him that he is raising up three different people who are going to execute his judgment, and they are in parallel with these big, miraculous, powerful events like the earthquake. But he also says, because the one thing that Elijah thinks is, I'm all that's left, I'm left, and nobody loves me, and I'm so tired, I just want to die. And he says, and by the way, I've also got 7,000 who've never bowed their knees to Baal, and they're mine as well. And guess what? They're the small, still voice. He's not talking about how to listen to the voice of God. What he's saying in this story is he's saying, I am still here, and my work is still going out. It may not be sexy. It may not be exciting. It may not be what you think it is, and not work how you think it is, but this is how I do things. And it's okay. We want the big, and God gives us the little. Fifth principle, you want to learn to look for ways to serve needs of others rather than fulfill your own desires. This seems so easy for people to hear, but it's harder than you think. I always laugh when I see people who I think are not very faithful in ministry, and then they start to kind of awaken and they're like, Pastor, you know, I'll serve. Where could I serve? What can I do? And I give them something. And to their credit, they, they're like, okay. But what I always prepare myself for is them to become frustrated. And every one of you in ministry have been frustrated. And at some point, you've complained to me. And that's okay. I'm not rebuking for it. But you've all, in some sense or another, complained. And not to me, to another pastor or an elder. And as you find out that people are unfaithful, you find out that people are lazy, 
you couldn't come into church on time to save your life, but then finally you kind of woke up and decided you're going to grow up and start to serve, and now you've got a ministry, and you're like, Pastor, they just come whenever they feel like it. They're always late. They never sign up. They this, they that. I'm like, yeah. They're, in other words, they're just like you were just a couple weeks ago until now all of a sudden magically you want to be faithful. What we are called to do is just simply looking for ways to serve others. And we're going to have ourselves frustrated because a lot of times the people don't really care if you serve them. Tabitha and Dorcas is who I'm focusing on here. Now, we, I always threaten my wife that we should call one of our daughters Dorcas, but... She said, no, I'll generally will use the name Tabitha. But what I like about this story is Tabitha is known here by everybody in her city. Why? Because she was a woman who did good works. She is what First Timothy 5 would describe as a true widow who is serving the people and the church. And she does it through making of these clothing that she gives away to the poor. And you don't live in a society where that would mean something, but I've been to countries and cities and villages where a person owns literally the rag that's on his back and nothing more. And it was her task to raise, to take the fabrics, sew the things, and then give them away. So much so that the whole city recognized that she was dead and there was ache. She served, not in any sexy way. She didn't have a preaching ministry. She didn't have a book ministry. She just faithfully sewed. And then didn't figure out how to monetize it. She just simply gave them away. And one day she got sick and died. But she was a woman marked by good works. We don't know anything else about this woman. And yet she's written of highly here as a woman who is faithful. She's not saying, well, I'm getting older, so now it's my time to rest. My husband and I saved our money so we can go fishing. No, she understood that her calling was to be a servant. She sought to be a person of grace. But she's not the only one. Notice in verse uh, 38. Near, since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, people who lived there uh, in Joppa, they decide well, let's go get Peter. And so they asked two men to go, and these guys go. And you're like, so what? Well, that's serving. It's, it's that boring. It's that simple. It's they needed somebody to serve by going. Would that be you? If I said, hey, I need two people that can take the time, would you walk 12 miles? Go find this guy, Peter, urge him to come and then bring him back. Would you do it? How many of you guys would say, yeah, I'll do that. I'm, I'm down with that. This is just that willingness to serve. That's why some of you, you, you beat yourself up because you're like, I don't think I serve. Yet you serve all the time. You're like these guys. It may not be a big one, but you're faithfully trying to meet the needs in whatever way you can. So these guys walk 12 miles. It's a 10 to 12 hour round trip. They find Peter, they beg him to come, and they make certain that he does. That's service. It's just simply being willing. Let me end this all this way. My last principle is actually what got me thinking about this whole thing. Out of the blue in verse 40, 
I'm sorry, in 43, we have this one little throwaway line, but it's never a throwaway line. And it happened that he, Peter, stayed many days in Joppa with who? Simon the Tanner. My last principle is if you're not still sure about what you should do in service, be like Simon the Tanner. Just be like him. He never did anything great to our knowledge. He did no miracles, no book deals, nothing. But when he finds out an apostle's in town and he has nowhere to live, he's like, oh, I'll take him. Now, here's what you have to know about being a tanner. It's a smelly job. And you would do your job at where you live. So all of these fresh hides are being put into all kinds of nasty chemicals and other sorts of stuff that I won't get into. And the place stunk. But that's how we made, they made leather. And what you have here is a guy who doesn't talk himself out of serving because, well, my house is small, I'm not wealthy, it stinks. Nope. He goes and says, Peter, you can stay with me. And Peter was happy to do so. Some of you are saying, well, I don't want to open up my house to hospitality. It's too dirty. It's too small. It's too this. I'm not that great of a cook. Well, it can't be any worse than Simon. And he served. And all I would say to you is, if you're not sure what to do, be like Simon. Just open up your home and meet the needs, whatever they are, right there. All of that to say is this is a very simple sermon. There's nothing deep going on here, but it is that basic exhortation for you to look around and serve as needed. Try to fulfill the need rather than think that somebody should fulfill the need. If the Lord has given you the opportunity, then seek to seize it. See what happens as you do. You might find God blessing you in ways you didn't expect. And if you ever start to think you've served enough or that people don't appreciate you enough, go back and remember the gospel that Jesus said that he did not come to be served, but to serve. He laid his life down on you, for you. He was the one who bound himself up and knelt down and washed the feet. And they're all shocked and saying, no, 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 you shouldn't do it. He's like, if you won't let me do this, you have no part in my kingdom. But what's he showing? He's showing that there is nothing too low for you. In fact, all things are too high for us, except that God grants us the grace to serve one another. And that is all I'm asking you to do, is look for ways that you can serve through love one another. Let's pray. So, Father, as we prepare to go home and we stand around talking and And whatnot, I do pray that you would open up our eyes to the many ways that we can serve. There are people in this room right now whose service is a kind word at the right moment. And there are others here who are so gentle and encouraging to the people who are discouraged. I pray that you would cause them to be strengthened in their heart as they realize that they do have a service, a ministry, a way that they serve, and that they didn't even know they're doing it, and that they'd be encouraged. And then others who feel like they have been set on the sidelines, Lord, let them shake that away and open up their eyes that merely the opportunity to serve has changed and they just need to see the new way to do it. Help us, all of us, so that we would serve one another in the love of Jesus Christ. We ask in your son's name. Amen.